0: If you're one of those who believes the name of Jesus is powerful, would you say amen? amen. Okay, I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. So we just, we just declared that in song, and um, we're going to look at a text this morning that is really going to amplify that, and what he's doing in your life, what he's done for you, and who you are now. Um, I really need to take you back into Romans 6. So first of all, if if you're late coming in, happy Father's Day. Glad that you're here, dads. Uh, My wife asked me if I was teaching a Father's Day message, and I said, well, teaching Romans. And so it's it's Romans 6, and it's for dads, but it's for moms. It, It doesn't matter if you're a parent or not. This is going to speak to you where you're at, and so I'm going to ask you to evaluate yourself and ask a question in the midst of what we're going through because there's some measurable realities you can apply to your own life today. doesn't matter what age you are, some measurable realities, and you need to ask yourself this question in the midst of what we're looking at. Is this true of me? Is this true of my walk with Jesus? I've got something I want you to chew on for a minute in verse 23 before we dive into where we're going. So in Romans 6, 23, it makes a declaration, it's kind of the climax of what Paul is building up to. In 23, it says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Somebody say amen to that. It's a great, great climax verse. It it takes him 22 verses to get to that statement. Now, some of you are looking at that and saying, wait, wait, how did we get to verse 23 already? I I remember leaving off at verse 14. Well, we're going to go back to verse 15. Uh, But I need you to chew on that between now and next week because we're going to come back to verse 23 next week. Read this again. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. This is telling me something. Eternal life is not a reward for services rendered, right? It's not payback by God for good things that you did throughout your life. It's a free gift of God. You can't buy it, you can't earn it. There's no component of pay involved here. And that's a struggle for us. Americans, that's a huge struggle for us. We love to earn things, right? We start out as children, parent gives us allowances, We, we get wages from our employers, We're used to earning things. It's just part of who we are, part of our Western society, and we're told that this is free. Eternal life comes as God's free gift. Check this, and this is going to be hard for some people. Eternal life comes as God's free gift, or it does not come at all. Right? We're on the same page on that? It comes as God's free gift, or it does not come at all. There is no secondary method according to God's word. So we'll come back to verse 23 next week. Uh, I just need you to understand that this is going to play heavily into what we're looking at this morning. Let me pray with you as we gently step into where we're going. Let's pray together. Father, we come before you recognizing that you have no rival. There is no one equal to you. We're willing to declare that in song publicly. We're willing to state it. We'll say it in the community. There's no one like you. And so we come before you wanting to know more about you, wanting to understand you and our relationship to you and who we are to you and who you are to us and your claim upon our life. God, I pray that through the power of the Holy Spirit, you will illuminate minds this morning. Just turn on switches, Father. Focus us. Help us to understand by the work of the Holy Spirit who is present. Let us be fully engaged in this. God, take us now into this book of Romans, which is so rich, and teach us through your power. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. There's this big idea coming out of verses 15, 16, and 17. That's all the further we're going to get today. I really wanted to get into verse 18, can't do it, okay? So we'll spend the bulk of our time in 15, 16, and 17, and there's this big idea coming out that really resonates with me because of what I did in college, When I was in um, Bible college, I was a major in aviation and a minor in Bible, and during my summers when I would go home, I would work in a foundry. A foundry is a factory, if you're not familiar with it, where they superheat metal to the degree that it becomes molten steel. Um, Not just orange, but glowing white, white, super hot, to the degree that it's liquid, And once the master of the kiln has the iron superheated, then he delivers it to smaller kilns, and those of us that were the little worker bees in the foundry, we would pour that liquid iron into molds, and it would form it and shape it, and and the mold would contain it and force it into a, a new figure, different from what it was. And and then the steel would begin to cool, and it would still glow orange, but it would then have that shape. And coming out of verse 15 and 16 and 17, we can see that when God makes a new creation, he takes us like molten steel, heated super white hot because of the saving power of Jesus Christ, and he casts us into a mold called divine truth. He does that through his word. That divine truth is his word, and it does something in you. It produces a righteousness. That's where we're going this morning. The righteousness that God produces in you through the work of his word and through the power of his Holy Spirit in your life. Now, people get confused, and we talked about this a little bit Saturday night in the, in the service afterwards because of Q&A. Individuals were wondering, what are you talking about producing a righteousness? I thought God already sees me as righteous, Well, God does see you as righteous this morning. Right, church? Amen? Amen. He does. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God sees you as holy this morning. Not because of what you've done, but because of what Jesus has done. But there's a righteousness that's revealed in you as you obey God, as you follow His Word, as you submit yourself to His leading. If you don't understand what I'm talking about here, just hear me on this. It is God's mercy that we get the benefits of the relationship before we ever understand them. That's God's mercy. We get the benefits of the relationship before we ever understand them. In other words, God doesn't wait for my mind to catch up to His work before I get the benefits of His work. Let me give you an example of that. If I'm a believer in Jesus this morning, I already have the benefit of eternal life. It's mine. It belongs to me. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are already destined for eternity, and nothing can change that. Nothing can snatch you out of the hands of the Savior. Jesus says, I know who are mine, and nothing can take them from my Father's hand. God doesn't wait for my mind to catch up to that reality. The benefit is now. Even though I've never seen heaven, Scripture says the mind has not had it enter into its head, the eye has not seen, the ear has not heard, all the things that God has in store for those who believe. My mind hasn't caught up to that reality, but I get the benefit of knowing it's mine and nothing can change that. So here's the benefit on top of that benefit. When you seize upon that reality, when you grasp that, I'm here to tell you that whatever trouble you came in the door with this morning, whatever heartache, whatever physical issue, whatever financial issue you have going on in your life, it disappears like a vapor in the face of Jesus when you seize upon the reality that God says you are mine and you are under my grace. Are the issues still there? Yeah, the issues are still there. You may still have a physical issue. You may still have a financial issue. You may still have a relationship issue. But they're like a vapor in the face of Jesus because God says, I got the big issue covered. You are mine for eternity And so chapter 6 is Paul's response to that reality when he says, because of that reality, because of who you are, live like it. Live like you belong to God. So let me take you back to verse 14 where we left off a couple weeks ago. Verse 14 says, because of who you are, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. See, Romans 6 was written to remind us of who we are right now, living in this present reality of our present salvation. Not someday, something that you get in the future, but you've got it right now. It belongs to you, so you're called to live like that. So Paul can say things like, sin's not your master. You're under grace. You, new hope, you are under the command of grace, and it's in that power that Jesus calls you to live Let me give you the context for what's going on here as we dive into verse 15. Paul's living in a day when legalism is rampant. Not that it's not today, but in the first century especially because of the Jewish community and the world that he grew up in. He understood that there were many people who believed that you could get to God by doing a set of rules. You do this and this and this and this, Paul, and maybe God will like you well enough to let you in one day. So they lived under a system of rules and laws thinking that if they just did enough of the right things, maybe God would like them. And many people think that way today. Maybe if I just do enough of these things, of these rules, God will like me. That's part of the legalistic thinking. So they really struggled when Paul started talking about grace and getting to God of no merit on our own, but only because of what Jesus has done. So the reasoning went like this among the legalists. Well, if God's grace covers all sin and the law is no longer needed, then Paul, your believers in Jesus, are going to do whatever they please because they don't have to obey the law anymore. Well, as in any age, just like in 2017, legalists believe that you obey a certain set of rules and then you'll get in. So in their view, Paul is declaring grace and he's giving license to sin. So verse 15 is kind of a response to that, and he's writing to the Christians, Christ followers, who have declared that there's no rival, there's no equal to God. Jesus is above everything. Verse 15 is a response to Christians saying, what then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? May it never be. What then is a rhetorical question. Paul's pretty big on that. He does that a lot, very similar to verse 1. Uh, you might think as you're reading some of this in Romans, man, Mark, Paul seems really repetitive. Like, I feel like I've read this before. Well, you probably have something similar to it. And the reason he's repetitive is because of the monumental significance of what he's saying. It's so significant, he has to say it over and over again so that we really get this. Christians are set free. We are free from bondage of slavery, of sin. My chains are gone. If your chains are gone, would you say amen? Great. Great. Your chains are gone. You know that. You understand that. You're no longer a slave to sin. You're free in Jesus Christ. But that freedom in natural human thinking leads to certain things. We are free. We're set free. Our chains are gone. But this grace, and this is what many Christians miss, this grace places you under a new obligation, a new responsibility that many people are content to ignore. The new obligation is that we would grow, that we would grow in righteousness. You can't be more saved than you already are. You're saved right now because you believe in Jesus. But you can grow in your righteousness. You press on towards the high calling in Christ Jesus. That's what we're being called to. So let me give you some examples. Here's some verses you could write down in your notes this morning, or maybe in the back of your Bible if you have that open, just to remind you of some of the things that we're being called to. Philippians 1.27, Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Ephesians four one, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 1 Thessalonians two twelve, walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. This freedom, church, that we have in Jesus, this grace that we're under, it is not a lack of control on God's part for us. It's not as though He reached into the car and unhooked the seatbelt and said, "Fine, you're free. Go out in the street and play." It's not a lack of restraint on God's part. Paul's right in saying in verse 15, you're not under the law. He's reaffirming you are free. But this freedom doesn't mean free from God's call of righteousness upon your life. God has called us to a high standard of obedience. See, grace is the furthest thing from a license to sin. The problem I told you about with a legalist is, Paul, you're teaching grace. People are going to feel like they can go out and do whatever they want then. That's from the legalist side, but here's another issue Paul's got going on, and it's a problem today in 2017, and, and it's a dirty little secret that Christians will never talk about publicly, but it was a problem in the first century, and it's a problem today because of our human nature, this is the way we tend to think. Well, it's grace that saves me, not my lifestyle. It's not my lifestyle that saves me or the way that I live. My destiny is secure in Jesus, so it doesn't really matter if I slip into sin. It doesn't matter if I do blank. See, we would never, even to our best friend, admit that. We would never say that we think that way, but we think that way. And I won't even ask for a show of hands, right, because we're not going to do that. But we do because of our human nature. We think, hey, I got this. My destiny is secure. Pastor Mark says, I'm destined for heaven. I can do whatever I want. So Paul's got both of these issues going on. Legalists who are saying, Paul, you teach that, and people are just going to go out and do whatever they want. And then you got Christians who know that, and they secretly carry that thought around. So Romans 6 is a huge rejection of that attitude when Paul says, may it never be the same thing he said in verse 2, right? No, a thousand times no. It's morally absurd. It's spiritually absurd. The very purpose of grace is to free us from sin. So, how could grace possibly justify continuing in sin? I want to put this quote on the screen so it stays with you. It helps when you read things yourself. So, I want you to see this. We get this first part grace justifies, right? Grace not only justifies, if you're before God, you're, you're legally seen by God right now as a believer in Jesus justified, but grace not only justifies, grace transforms. Did you know that? Grace changes you. Are you different today than you were five years ago, than you were ten years ago? Is this true of me? Is there transformation in my life? Am I growing in my walk with Jesus Christ? Grace not only justifies, grace transforms. And this is going to be hard. A life that gives no evidence of that transformation gives no evidence of salvation. It's hard to hear, but it's true. A life that gives no evidence of that transformation is giving no evidence of salvation. There's freedom in Jesus, but it means to be set free from sin in order to live according to the standard God has placed on us, not in order to gain our salvation, but in order to be a reflection of God's character. So I'm setting you up for verse 16, and if you're a believer this morning, I'm going to ask you to face the fact. If you're a believer in Jesus, face the fact. Your salvation this morning actually means a change of bondage. When you were a master, your sin was mastering over you, you are now mastered by Jesus. Verse 16. Paul gives a first century illustration. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? Stop right there. Don't don't finish the sentence yet. Paul's setting it up. He's giving you a reality. Don't you know? When you put yourself out there and your behavior, the things that you do, it reveals things about you. Finish the sentence with me. Either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. He's giving another rhetorical question here. And pretty big on that, right? He's driving the point home. Now, the first century recipients of this letter are just like you. They're, they're sitting in a service someplace and somebody has delivered the book of Romans to them. You happen to have the privilege of having it in your hand. You own your own copy, whether it's on your phone, your iPad, you're reading it on the screen, or you've got a Bible open in your hand right now. You get a privilege they didn't have. They only had a scroll, one scroll for the whole church. And they're reading through this, and they get to verse 16 of chapter 6, and they see this real-life illustration that Paul's pulling out of here. Paul's reasoning something about slaves, about a slave being completely at the disposal of his master. And the key phrase in there is, when you present yourself, in verse 16, and immediately the first century Romans knew exactly what he's talking about because they could walk out of a church service and they could walk downtown and they would find an auction block and human flesh on the auction block, whether it's a little boy, a little girl, a grown man, or a grown woman who are selling themselves into slavery because slavery was a common part of the world that they lived in. So you could walk downtown, see humans on the auction block, and you could bid on them. Whether you had a lot of debt and you wanted to sell yourself to pay off your debt, or you just needed to bring some income into your family. Slavery was common. In the city of Corinth, during the time that Paul lived, one-third of the population of Corinth had sold itself into slavery, either to pay debt or to provide an income. Many parents would sell their children just to bring an income stream into the house. If they were unemployed, they had to find ways to generate money. Paul's got a basic premise going on here. He's saying that all of us are slaves before believing in Jesus. We have a master over us called sin. It dominates us. And no one is free to do as we want. We're subject to the bondage of sin. So his point is the master that we obey reveals who we actually belong to. You need to hear that again? The master whom you obey reveals who you actually belong to. At our house here, Lori and I own some property east of Hazlitt where our home is at, and we have some acreage there, and so we raise golden retrievers. And um, Lori likes to um, have the, the male and the female together in and, and the kennel, and I watch them throughout the day, and we, we let them out into the yard, and they obey things sometimes that we tell them to do, but um, I've taught Dakota, who's the male. I think he's smarter. My wife would probably disagree with me, but Dakota, I think, is smarter than Emma, and he's um, able to discern voices and to respond to one-word commands, and so... I can see him quite a ways away from me, and I've taught him to come on just one word so we don't confuse him and just say, Dakota, come, and he'll start bolting across the property. And it really helps if I'm walking towards the dog dish at the time to feed him, right? He's, he's especially motivated by that. But he hears the voice of the master, and he responds instantly. He's revealing who the owner is who takes care of him, right? Now, I've never experimented with this, but I think if I took you out to our house and you stood with me and maybe you were on one side of the property and I was on the other and you started calling Dakota and I started calling him, I think he's going to come to me. I probably should test that at some point. But he's responding to who the master is. The, The master we obey reveals who we actually belong to. And Paul goes on to make the point, and no one serves two masters... Because by definition, a slave belongs to the person they're completely sold to. Now Jesus talks about this issue. Now He talks about it according to money, but let me show you the verse in the context of what Jesus was saying, Matthew 6, 24. He said it this way, no one can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Now, Jesus is not saying it's legally impossible to have two masters, because you could. There were slaves who were co-owned. You could work Monday through Thursday at one person's house, and you could work Friday through Sunday at another person's house. People co-owned slaves. But there's a loyalty issue, because what happens if one slave master sets the slave free and the other slave master doesn't? Well, you're going to despise the one. You're going to love the other one. Or what if one gives you easier work than the other one does? Well, you're going to love one and you're going to hate the other. That's what Jesus is talking about here. No one can serve two because your devotion is going to go to one or the other. He's emphasizing the impossibility of compromise for every single person who identifies themselves as a follower of Jesus. You come to the place where you have to say, it's either sin or it's God. What has control over me? It cannot be both. So let me break 16 down into this little compressed sentence. You see it on the screen, and he says it emphatically. You are slaves of the one whom you obey. Now, in our culture, it would be very politically inappropriate for me to say what I'm about to say, but because God's Word says it, I'm going to say it. According to God's Word, unbelievers in Jesus are slaves to sin. God's word is very very clear about that. Unbelievers are slaves to sin. Believers are slaves to obedience. Your behavior reveals who you belong to. But the essential ingredient is obedience. You can't have it any other way. Obedience is a function of a slave to do as he's told. A change of ownership just means that obedience goes to someone else. So Paul's insisting something here. I know this is meaty. This is deep stuff. But he's insisting that obedience is a critical part of the life you live under grace. God says, you're mine. You're under my grace. You belong to me. Your allegiance is to me. How is that evidenced in your life? So I'm asking you to ask that question. Is this true of me? Because if the essence of sin is disobedience to God, just think Adam and Eve for a moment. If the essence of sin is disobedience to God, then the reverse has to be true. Conversely, obedience is the mark of belonging to God. So our daily living, the things we do day in and day out, it reveals, behavior reveals Are you noticing that there's only two alternatives here? But there's a dramatic difference in the two alternatives. Look at verse 16 again. He says, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death. And by the way, he's talking about habitual sin here. We're not talking about, oh, I screwed up yesterday. Man, did I lose my temper. That's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about somebody who habitually over and over and over again finds himself caught up in the exact same sinful behavior with no desire to change. He's talking about someone who's going to result then in death, and in that case, it's eternal death. Now, I know many of you are students of the Bible. You, you love to study God's Word. You showed up here on Father's Day of all days to study God's Word, all right? So consider yourself a student of the Word. And students of the Word are reading this and we're thinking, okay, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in, and we think he would use the word life there, but he doesn't. He uses the word righteousness, obedience resulting in righteousness. You would expect, he would say, obedience resulting in life. But remember, he's surrounded by legalists, and these legalists have a view that you can do things that leads to life. You can do things that makes God like you better. And Paul's not saying that. He's giving zero tolerance to any view of salvation by works. So he saves his reference to life until you get to verse 23 eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The point is there's no other substitute. You're either mastered by sin and under the rule of Satan or you're mastered by Jesus and you're walking in righteousness. Matthew Henry is a guy who lived in the 1800s. Many of you probably read his commentaries, but he's got this famous quote that he said in relation to this. You see it on the screen. If we would know to which of these two families we belong, we must inquire to which of these two masters we yield our obedience Pretty good, right? It's a good way to measure yourself. Is this true of me? Because behavior reveals. My pattern of daily behavior proves who my true master is. Now, here's where citizens of the United States of America really struggle, right? Okay. In our Western world, we recoil at the very thought of what I'm describing right now. Because we're all about freedom, right? One nation, undivisible, indivisible, under God. Freedom, that's what we're all about. No one's my master. We broke free from that. We don't have masters over us, but yet the Bible says we've got a master. See, there's this popular notion that's been introduced into society, not just in the United States, but in the Western world, that every person is a master of their own destiny. That is absolutely a delusion that's been imposed by Satan. It was imposed on mankind. Go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and you find specifically Satan using that as an argument in order to get people to rebel against God. What, did God say that you should not eat of the tree and the fruit there? He knows that if you do that, you'll be masters of your own destiny. You shall be as God. That's the lie that was foisted upon mankind. And we continue to believe it today that we're masters of our own destiny when in fact we're either mastered by sin or we're mastered by God. There's strong warning against that kind of thinking in the New Testament. Peter, who formerly was a fisherman, finds himself at the end of his life writing the books of First Peter and Second Peter, and he doesn't sound like a fisherman. When he begins writing about this issue, check this. Watch this on the screen. See if this sounds like a fisherman to you or somebody who's a deep, deep thinker. First, or 2 Peter two eighteen, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. Doesn't sound like a fisherman, does it? Something's happened in this guy's life. There's transformation. God has poured him into the mold of his word. And Peter is giving evidence that he's growing in Christ. He's not talking like a fisherman anymore. He's talking about a guy who's maturing in Jesus to the degree that he's chasing after God. And he lives in a world in which people falsely are teaching in the church. You're free to do whatever you want to do. Paul's saying, no, no. Peter's saying, no, you're mastered by the things that you're enslaved by. By what you're overcome, you're a slave to that. See, if reality is acknowledged, New Hope, if reality is acknowledged, it's obvious. Humans are not independent. My dad especially struggled with this. Um, Many of you know that my dad came to faith in Jesus in the 1970s, and I've shared that story before. But... What was going on in the background was a pretty big issue for me to watch as a teenager. I'm 14 years old, and I'm watching my dad burn through his paychecks. when he goes out to the bars and parties on the weekends, and he's hanging out with his cousins and my uncles, and my mom living a godly life, and my aunts living a godly life, and trying to call their husbands to follow after Jesus and be an example for their family. And the response back from my male figures in my life, from my dad and from my uncles is, I don't want that. I enjoy my life. I like my freedom. I want the things that I'm doing on the weekends. Why would I want that? See, here's the struggle. Unbelievers who do not devote themselves to Jesus Christ, they typically think they're free And if they come to Jesus, they're going to lose all of their freedom. They're going to have to give it up. An unsaved person only has one true choice. And the one true choice that they have is when, how, why, and to what degree they're going to sin because they're mastered by something. You're going to be mastered by sin or mastered by God. What each one fails to understand is they already are slaves. The measurable reality is who do we serve? So in coming to Jesus, we exchange one master for another. This is exactly what John wrote about. Let me show you on the screen, 1 John 3, 9. No one who is born of God practices sin. He's talking about habitual sin here. Practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. So Paul's got this argument going on in verse 16. Obedience, obedience to God's word produces in you a righteousness, and that righteousness is spiritual maturity, and it's it's identifiable in your life. Did you know that? People can see it. I can see it in you. You can see it in me. You can point to it. You can say, I see Jesus in you. It's identifiable. Watch in verse 17, Paul says, here's one way I see it, but thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Got this huge outburst going on for what's happened. Something has changed in their life. The Roman Christians have rejected the old master and now they've become obedient to a new master obedient from the heart. So this is clear. It's not just about outward behavior. God's working on the core because His Word even discerns our thoughts. Amen, church? It does. Like three of you believe that. His Word divides. It opens up. It discerns. It helps us understand his nature and character and his call upon us. That's why he said, my word is alive and it's active and it changes our very nature. And as a result, we become obedient. And I I don't know how to be more clear on this than what I'm about to say, but this obedience issue, get your amens ready if you believe this. This obedience does not produce salvation. Amen? It doesn't. It doesn't produce salvation, and it does not maintain salvation. It's a reflection of the fact that God's got his call on us. It's an identifiable characteristic of those who are saved. It's a visible life change. Let me give you one to measure yourself. If you're asking yourself the question right now, is this true of me? The ultimate measurable form of obedience is the word belief. Believe. I give you a real world example from someone who attends the Saturday night service. And I know there's individuals in this auditorium that could tell the same story. An individual who came to faith in Jesus Christ two years ago, who did not believe prior to two years ago, and said, I do not believe that stuff Had not surrendered or submitted himself to the reality of the things that we're talking about. The ultimate measurable form of obedience is belief because belief in itself is an act of obedience. So, for a person to transform from, I do not believe in the resurrection of Jesus, I do not believe that he died for my sins, to a person coming to the place where they say, Absolutely, Jesus, take my sins away. I understand who you are now. You are the King of glory. You died for my sins. For a person to change from non-belief to belief is the ultimate form of obedience. So if you're a believer this morning, you've exhibited obedience in your life. You've surrendered to God. But at the same time, it is not forced. It's a surrendering of the will. That is the core element of obedience. God, I surrender. I can't fix this on my own. I can't save myself. I can't get myself out of hell. But you can, so I surrender to you. John MacArthur's got a really accurate way of summing this up. I'll let you see his sentence. He said it this way. God has no unwilling children in his family, no unwilling citizens in his kingdom. Excellent. Well said. Let's end with three words. This phrase coming out of the midst of what he was talking about being obedient. You're obedient to this form of teaching. By virtue of becoming Christians, by becoming followers of Jesus Christ, believers obligate themselves to something. We obligate ourselves to the law of Christ. Now, Paul's just argued that we're no longer under the law, and clearly he's talking about the Old Testament law, the system of rules and regulations by someone thinking they could earn their righteousness. But now we're told in the New Testament there's a new law in place, the law of Christ. Let me show you an example of it. You'll see it up on the screen. It comes from Galatians 6.2. Bear one another's burdens and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. If you go to 9, 10, 11, 12 different places in the New Testament, you're going to find that phrase repeated multiple times, the law of Christ, the law of Christ, the law of Christ. Believers have obligated themselves now to a new law. And Paul says, You have committed yourself to this form of teaching. What is he talking about? If you went from the church in Ephesus to the church in Rome, or from the church in Rome to the church in Corinth, or the church in Corinth to Laodicea, you would find that form of teaching of the law of Christ being repeated over and over and over and over again. Because prior to Jesus, no one talked about bearing someone else's burdens. No one talked about rescuing the widows and orphans and and going after those who were down and out. It came as a result of Jesus. It infected the whole world. What we live with today, with the educational systems and the hospitals, all the things that we experience in our Western world, birthed out of Christianity. Jesus introduced the law of Christ And these were reproducible in all the churches. And Paul's saying, you're committed to that form of teaching that comes from Jesus. You committed yourself to that believer. That form of teaching of what he raised before you, see, what he's pointing towards is authentic biblical teaching, not a series of interesting topics. Biblical teaching which exhorts, it compels, it moves you towards response. And the truth is, no believer comprehends all of God's truth. We'd like to think that we do. We'd like to think we comprehend all of the form of teaching. I listened a couple years ago to one of my heroes and someone who's mentored me um, say a, a remarkable statement. And he's in his 80s now. His name is Chuck Swindoll. Many of you are familiar with him because he's a radio pastor. But Chuck is also the president of Dallas Theological Seminary and also pastors a church of uh, around 15 to 20,000 people. And Chuck himself said at this stage in my life, approaching 80 years of age, I have just begun to scratch the depths of the surfaces of the truth and the knowledge of God's Word. And I'm hearing, I'm in my 40s, and I'm hearing him say this, and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's 40 years ahead of me, and he's just scratching the surface? How far do I have to go? The truth is no believer comprehends all of God's truth. Even the most mature Christian only scratches the surface of the depth of God's word. But Paul's argument is this, a genuine desire to know God's word and obey it. And that's a measure of salvation in your life. It chasten after the truth of God So I've saved these last two words for the very, 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 very end. They're in your notes this morning, these Greek words, and you're going to see them on the screen, and I saved them because it makes so much sense with what we started with. The first word, this form that you were committed to, the word form is this word tupos, and it's used of a mold in the metal industry. And and there I find being repeated the very thing that I experienced in college, working those late summer nights, watching this liquid steel be poured into these sand molds and new form taking place in in front of my very eyes. And now I find it right here in the midst of Romans chapter 6. Paul says you've been committed to that, that two posts of teaching. You've been committed over to this form like a mold. God has poured you in as though you were liquid metal. The second word that's used here is this word committed, paradigma, and it's literally talking about being delivered over to. If you were to read the literal Greek translation for this phrase here, that form of teaching which you were delivered into, something has happened in your life, believer. If you identify yourself as a believer in Jesus Christ... God's word is being delivered to you right now. You're holding it in your own hand. You can read it. But a believer is also delivered into God's word. God's Holy Spirit is working within you. Brings conviction. Brings reality. And so I ask this question, is this true of me? Because the big idea coming out of this is God has made you a new creation. And as a new creation, you are like molten steel superheated by God and poured into this mold. And this mold will shape you and form you. It's called divine truth. And that divine truth, his word, it produces a righteousness in you. Paul is emphasizing the critical link between God's truth, his word, and obedient living in Christ. And it's like him putting a stamp on you. You've been shaped and molded. And it's not to earn your salvation, but to grow in it. That's why Paul could say, I press on towards the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Keep pushing and pushing. Not that we're ever going to attain unto it. This is why. The Bible warns us that there's a time coming... When men will not adhere to sound doctrine, and they will accumulate teachers for themselves who will tickle their ears, tell them things that they want to hear, and they will chase after myth. That's found in 2 Timothy, by the way. It's true in the first century. It's true today. You've got to be students of the Word to know and to divine and understand right from wrong. So Paul says there's an ultimate evidence of that in your life. I see it. The biblical teaching to which a believer submits stamps us. Paul says, here's the stamp. I'm just going to end with this verse, verse 18. And having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Boom. Stamp. Bold image. It says, I can can see it in you. She's describing the new condition. Been set free from sin, liberated permanently from the old taskmaster, and now a new identity in Jesus Christ. But that's next week. Can't wait. Okay, chew on verse 23 this week. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let, let's pray that God would take what we've just studied and he will transform us through it? Let's pray that way. Father, I thank you so much for the opportunity to examine your word freely, to to delve into it. So God, I ask that take what we've done and what your Holy Spirit is working on each individual life with right now and use it for your glory and your kingdom in such a way, God, that we would become fragrant I pray, God, that we would see such transformation that people around us would notice the change because it is identifiable, that we would walk and talk more like Jesus, that we would press on towards that imagery. And, Father, we find that standard in your word, so use your word in our life this week. Use what we've studied and don't let it quickly escape from our mind praise you, Father, for the salvation that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's in his name that we pray, and all God's people said, amen. Amen. Have a great week, New Hope.